Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Uh, like Dave just said, we'll be in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, if you have your Bibles this morning. That's where we'll be. Uh, and while you turn there, as we do in Park, at Parkway, I'll just give you a quick story about myself. So the first year that I became a Christian, that I came to the faith, I thought that the key characteristic of a disciple of Christ what a, what a true follower of Christ was, was someone that had great passion for God. Okay, how fired up you got when you're talking about God. Your, the, your ability to display your zeal for the Lord. That's what I thought was the most important thing. So that was my gauge. And I had a pretty high bar because I myself was passionate. So I had a pretty high bar for who was a Christian. And so as I began to look around me and people aren't meeting my kind of high bar of passion, I began to get frustrated with what I perceived to be hypocrisy. And as I began to get frustrated, I took it upon myself in the very prophetic way to cleanse the church of false believers. Somehow, it's gotten into our head that we're not supposed to constantly weep every time we talk about God, so I'm going to fix this. So that whole first year, I was getting in uh, constant debates with people over the true nature of Christianity, right, fighting back and forth. Now, I myself didn't go to church, wasn't in a community group, or doing any of the things that the Bible says a faithful Christian does, but who cares about that because I had passion. And then it occurred to me, if I can quote a Bible verse at the end of my rants, people have to listen to me, right? That's the ultimate trump card. I'll have the biblical authority behind me as I rant on. So I begin to search the scriptures for any sort of uh, extreme explanation of what a disciple was. So I started in the Gospels and I came to this. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a good one, okay? Put that in my pocket for the next rant. And I come to another one. If anyone puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, he is not fit for the kingdom of God. I like that. No compromise, right? You can't look back. It's not fit for the kingdom. Then I came to my favorite one. If anyone would come after me and does not hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I actually had a group of young men poor young men that I was discipling that year for whatever reason, and I made them all break up with their girlfriends after I ra uh, read this passage. I said, does your love for Jesus, is it so great that your love for everybody else looks like hate? You dump that girl right now. Those poor guys are still recovering from that year. Uh, and then I come to the Gospel of John, right? I'm reading the Gospel of John. I'm reading about the eternal Son being made flesh for our salvation. But that doesn't really uh, suit my passion rant, so I'm just kind of breezing over that. And then I finally come to John 13, and I read what Jesus says here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And I think, here we go. Here's Jesus saying, hey, this is how everyone knows you're my disciple. Surely he's going to say something about martyrdom or great sacrifice, right? Your amount of passion. That's what I'm gearing for. Uh, but then I keep reading. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. And I thought, what? I was actually mad at Jesus for saying this for such a missed opportunity, right? Surely you could have at least said love for God or love for me, but love for one another, who cares about that? Uh, and so I really had to wrestle with the fact that I was defining Christianity, right? What it means to be a disciple by passion, but Jesus had a very different definition, and although it took me a while, I had to eventually come to see that what Jesus is describing here is something that is at the very core of the Christian identity. And it's something that John is going to talk about in our passage today, and it is this, our love 
for one another. Our love for one another. So let me pray and then we'll get into 1 John. Father, your word is the only thing that is valuable. There is uh, no illustration or anything I can do that will uh, do anything but diminish your pure word. Lord, we want to hear from you. Uh, So I pray that we would hear from your truth, Lord, that your spirit would open our hearts. Lord, that where we're prideful, we would be humbled. Where we're wrongfully condemned by our own spirit, you would encourage us. You would set our eyes upon you. We just want to hear from your word today and glorify you, Lord, that we would love one another more. So I pray that you would help me and open our hearts today. In your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, let's look at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another. Simple enough. Uh, I'm sure if you uh, have been in church for any amount of time in your life, you've heard something like this. You're carrying some sort of understanding uh, in your mind of what it means to love one another. The problem is there's almost no uh, concept more misunderstood in our culture today than what it means to love others. And that includes our church culture. It's almost harder for us who live in the Bible Belt South to understand loving one another because we typically define love as just kind of external niceness, right? Which is either a total veneer, you know, someone walks in, you're like, welcome, and they walk off and you're like, right? Just total veneer, or we do our little nice buffers, right? We say, bless his heart or God love him before we say something mean, right? God love her, but her kids, they're cross-eyed and they don't smell good, Right? Bless his heart, but I heard he lost his job because he can't read, right? This weird comments that we say whenever we put our little nice buffers in front of it. So we have to see what John means here by love. What does John mean in this context about love? Here he simply means to have warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them. To have warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them. Notice in that definition, there's both elements of feelings and action, right? Affection and service, right? One cannot exist without the other in any true biblical definition of love, right? Biblical love isn't just simply emotion, as if it's only the thought that counts, but at the same time, it's not service with a cold heart, right? We always try and separate the two. Are you a theology guy or do you love Jesus? Right, when I love, can I, have just, can I just like somebody or do I just have to serve them? Do I just have to take out the trash? Which one is it? And here John is saying it's both. It's both, right? Service uh, without love isn't biblical service. God cares about your heart. Right? He doesn't just want you to give. He wants a cheerful giver. Right? God loves a cheerful giver. But at the same time, warm feelings with no action show that the feelings actually aren't rooted in anything. Right, if I say, I love my wife, if I tell you I love my wife so much, but then I don't listen to her when she tells me about her day, I don't take her on any dates or do anything like that, she's basically an annoyance to me if you observe how we are together, you would probably say, I don't think you love your wife. You might love the idea of having a wife, but I don't think you love Claudia, right? Warm feelings with no action prove that those feelings aren't real, they're worthless. But a biblical definition has both, right? These affections and serving, Okay, so four years ago, uh, about the time that Jeff was starting here at Parkway, my wife and I moved 
uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina to go to seminary. Jeff said he wouldn't give me a job unless I went to seminary. So fine. We went to seminary, spent four years in Charlotte. Uh, and when we got there, we quickly signed up for a bunch of classes and we signed up for a counseling class called Counseling for Crisis and Addictions. I thought, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to have to counsel people. But what we didn't realize was this is a actually advanced counseling class for those in the counseling department. And so the first day of class, my wife and I were sitting on the front row, ready to go, and our professor walks in and turns on his PowerPoint, and the first slide is actually a video of a guy walking down the street, and then wham, he gets hit by a car, and our professor goes, trauma. And we're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> where are we? But in that class, uh, we actually met a single mom in her 50s named Dawn, who was from Charlotte. She could tell that we didn't belong. We were fish out of water there. So she just began to get to know us, uh, knew we were new to the area, so she showed us around Charlotte. She actually invited us over for dinner, introduced us to her family. Uh, that coming Easter, she found out we didn't have anywhere to go after church service, so she invited us over to her big feast with her extended family, something she did also uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. She actually bought us Christmas presents. Uh, and then as we get to know Dawn, we're noticing it's not just us that she's acting this way towards. There was constantly people being invited over for dinner, constantly people being uh, kind of invited to the holidays and things like that. Uh, there was actually a girl who went to our seminary who had recently converted from Mormonism and moved to Charlotte uh, very, very soon after that. And it didn't take long until she was living in Dawn's house. She didn't have a place to stay. And Dawn offered up uh, some of her spare rooms and began to love her and disciple her, a girl that was not just new to the area, but new to the faith. I think Dawn is a, is a great example of this biblical idea of love, right? Both having these affectionate feelings, but then also doing what is best for others. Edwin Feeney, one of our deacons here, is, I think, another incredible example. Uh, when my wife and I moved here, we bought a house that didn't have any fans uh, in it, and it was July, and my wife was pregnant. And so uh, I'm not handy, but I had to do something, right? It was really, really hot in our house. So I went to Home Depot and bought some ceiling fans. And Edwin lives in our neighborhood, so I asked him if I could borrow some tools and I guess watch YouTube for eight hours and try and figure out how to stick this thing up on the ceiling. But Edwin actually showed up at our door and then he spent six hours installing all of our ceiling fans, right? Another incredible example of this idea of love, doing what is best for others, serving them and having this warm regard towards them. Now, in a perfect world, you would have both. You would always have these nice feelings towards others and you would serve them. And you may have that with some people, right? There may be some people in the church that you like and you serve them and things like that. And then others that you maybe don't like, maybe because you don't know them or you just don't click or they're a little annoying to you. So what do you do in those instances? What do you do when the feelings aren't there, right? Well, first of all, uh, you need to realize that's okay. You're not always going to have feelings and be able to serve because of these warm feelings, right? As if you could just conjure them up, even if you wanted to. That's okay. Don't feel condemned by that. But what do you do when you don't have the feelings? You still do the action anyway while you wait for the feelings to catch up. You walk in love, you serve while you wait for the feelings to catch up. Uh, we had a baby in August, I think, August, yes, we had a new little baby, and the one rule uh, when you have a baby, everyone knows this, is you can't give it a popular name. 
Okay, the name has to be very unique. That's why you have all these weird babies running around named Breeze and stuff like that. So when we named our son Harvey, we knew we were golden because the name Harvey, to quote an actual article from the Huffington Post, is tanking in popularity because only bad things and bad people are associated with the name Harvey. Hurricane Harvey that destroyed Houston. Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Dent that becomes Two-Face and kills a bunch of people. Lee Harvey Oswald, am I right? So... We knew we were golden when we had Harvey. Uh, And to be honest, right when Harvey was born, I wasn't filled with this overwhelming emotional experience. I thought it was crazy that this little tiny living thing was in our house, but I didn't have this huge emotional connection instantly. And so naturally what I did is I just kind of let Claudia handle everything, right? She changed the diapers. Uh, When he cried at nighttime, I let her kind of go comfort him and all these different things because I didn't want to fake it, right? I want to be authentic. I don't want to do the action without the love, right? I want to be an authentic person. No, that's ridiculous. Of course, I changed my little boy's diapers and held him when he was crying, right? I walked in love. I did the action of a loving father and then waited for the feelings to catch up. And that's what we do. You walk in obedience and then you wait for the feelings to catch up when they're not there. So when we hear this command from John, let us love one another. Let's think rightly about it, right? With a true biblical definition of love. Let's see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's care for one another. Let's get to know one another and serve one another whether the feelings are there or not, right? Let's do what's best for one another, which may be encouragement in the darkest of times, but it also might be rebuke in times of sin, right? Let us love one another. So great. Thank you, John. Uh, Is that it? We just love one another? That sounds kind of like when my mom would say, you know, be nice. Like, I'll try. What's my motivation behind it, right? I'll muster it up as much as I can, but what is the reason why you're giving us this exhortation to love, John? And so he's going to tell us. His first reason is that we Christians, right, the beloved, should love one another because love is from God, Love is from God. Let's look back at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So John isn't simply giving us this command and then moving on, right? Just do it because I said so. Rather, he's giving us this exhortation that we should love one another, and then he's going to begin to build out the theological foundation of why we love one another. Show us the theology behind why he's giving us this command. And his first reason is where love comes from. Right? Why should we love one another if we're Christians? Because love is from our God. Love is from your God. So John is saying, I'm not telling you just to be nice or cordial towards one another so that things run more smoothly. I'm telling you that the very love that I'm calling you to love one another with is from your God. It finds its origins in God. Right? Love is not this huge external force that we're filled with, right? that overwhelms us, which is typically how we talk about love. You'll hear someone say, it was just bigger than the both, both of us, right? when they're talking about an affair that they just had or something like that, as if love is this external force that just overwhelms them and made them do it. Right? What do you want us to do? We were in love. right? It overwhelmed us. In marriage, we talk about it like it's this external force that we're filled with, and then it fizzles over time. Tens of thousands of people told me when I got married, enjoy the beginning, enjoy this honeymoon phase, meaning 
It's not going to be like this forever. Just wait until you're 10 years down the road like me. It goes away, right? This idea of you're filled with this love and then it goes away. Claudia and I went on a trip to Israel several years ago. So we booked one of those big, you know, tour guide things as you do. You get in the giant groups and you go around to all the sites. But what we didn't realize until we got there uh, is that we were the youngest uh, couple by about 40 years, uh, which made things interesting when you go to sites like the Dead Sea and everyone's floating in the salt. Uh, but no one in our group knew how to float. They were all turning over. So Claudia and I spent 100% of our time sprinting around, pulling 70-year-olds out of the water and dragging them to shore and wiping their eyes. Uh, but on the first day of the trip, we had a welcome breakfast so that we could get to know one another because we're about to spend a week together visiting all the biblical sites. And so Claudia and I walked in holding hands uh, as newly married couples do. And then this older couple saw us and they said, can I give you some advice? The husband said, can I give you some advice, son? I said, sure. And he goes, keep what you got. And then he walked off and I thought, it's a little weird, but maybe uh, he thinks, you know, the younger generation doesn't value marriage very well, but you guys look like you've got it. You just keep going. Don't be like, you know, all your uh, fellow generation people. And so we sat with them at breakfast and, you know, get to know this nice couple that gave us this great advice. And uh, halfway through the breakfast, the husband got up and he goes, honey, I'm going to get some coffee. You want some coffee? And she goes, no, sweetie, I'll have some juice. And he looked at her and said, do you want coffee? And she said, no, honey, I'll have some juice. And he stared at her and said, so no. And then he walked away. And then it hit me. Oh, he wasn't telling me, keep what you got, because he was like, you know, your kids are doing great. Keep going. He was saying, I remember what it was like to enjoy my spouse, but I don't anymore, right? So keep what you got so you don't end up like me, right? Another example of this idea that love is this external thing that fills us and then fizzles over time. But here's what John is going to say here. Love isn't this external thing that fills us and then fizzles over time. Love is from God. Love is from God. Love doesn't exist on its own apart from God, right? Trying to separate love from God, John Calvin says, is like trying to take away the heat from the sun. And anything that doesn't line up with what God says love is in his word is a counterfeit or a twisted, perverted form of love, right? God has revealed to us his loving character in his word, his loving commandments in his word, and we need to have our minds renewed to what he says love is. All of us, we're all born into sin with a twisted, wrong understanding of God's truth. That's how we all start off. And then when we're saved, as the Spirit uh, regenerates our heart, as we study God's word, he begins to renew our minds, right? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds to what he says love is. Several years ago, I worked in a young adults missions organization. I was on staff, but I myself was a young adult. We were like a year older than some of the students, so I don't really know how it uh, made sense or worked. But anyway, I was uh, on staff at this uh, kind of school that would study the Bible for nine months, and a common conversation I would have with students uh, was they would come to me and they would say, I don't really want to study the Bible today. I really just want to go get in the presence of God, and I want to feel the raw love of God for me. And that was a common, the raw love of God. And what they meant by that is they want to go go, you know, in their prayer room and listen to Bethel worship music and feel uh, what they perceive to be, you know, God loving them. And so what I would ask them every time is, where are you getting your understanding of God's love? Where are you getting your understanding of this love that you're about to go feel? Are you getting it because it's risen from the pages of scripture? 
or is it just how you think a loving God should act, right? Because those can be two radically, radically different things. God has revealed to us in his scriptures, this is what love is. This is how I'm loving, right? Love only comes from me. And if you're getting your understanding of love somewhere else than the God of the Bible, it's not real love, right? Love is from God. Love finds its origins in God. But John isn't simply making a statement about the source of love. He's telling us why we should love, right? He's saying, let this be your first motivator. Love is from your good God. This is the first theological ground where John sets this command that we love one another. It's because love is from our good God. So that's John's first reason. Why should we love one another? Because we know God. But what else? Surely there's got to be a little bit more uh, of why we should love one another, why this is so central to the Christian identity. And John is going to say, yes, of course. Second, he's going to tell us the one who loves does so because he has fellowship with God. The one who loves does so because he has fellowship with God. Let's look back at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let's look at that first part first. Whoever loves has been born of God. So John, we've heard, we've heard this term, born of God, several other places uh, in this letter. In chapter 2, we saw, uh, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Uh, in chapter 3, we saw no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We will see when we study chapter five, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And again, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So what does he mean by this? We've used it quite a bit. What does he mean? And I actually think the best explanation of what he means is found in the Gospel of John, when a man named Nicodemus comes uh, under the shadow of night to ask Jesus some questions. John 3 three through six. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Uh, Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Being born of God simply means that in your salvation, you've been adopted and you've been made a child of God. And now as one brought into the very family of God, you begin to bear the traits of your father. You walk in righteousness instead of sin. You overcome the world through the power of Christ and you begin to love one another. So an example would be, before we had kids, we didn't really pay attention to parenting styles. Right? I just kind of assumed it was luck of the draw. You get a good kid or you get a bad kid. Um, but when we came to McKinney, pregnant, I really started paying attention to parenting styles, uh, particularly the staff, because that's who we were surrounded by. And what I started to notice is that their kids are really well-behaved, right? They're obedient for the most part, and when they're not super, super energetic. Um, and the reason behind it was obvious. It was their parents, right? Their parents love them, care for them, discipline them when they're in the wrong because of who their parents were, the children look a certain way. And that's similar to what John means here. Because of who your heavenly father is, you begin to bear the marks of love in your life towards one another. 
right? We're not born of God physically or by our nature. Rather, we're born spiritually, and now our character is shaped by our relationship to our Father. So John is pointing out the fact that the love we have for one another shows the divine family that we've been brought into. We're recognized by our love, and people know you must be born of God. And so if you're a Christian, this incredible reality, this incredible identity is a reality in your life. But John is saying this identity isn't just a status, right, as if God just filled out the adoption paperwork and then did nothing else. Rather, it's transformative. Notice his wording there, whoever loves has been born of God. Being born of God comes first and love is the result, right? Being made a child of God is the cause and love is the result, right? It shows the reality of what God has already done in your life, that God has done everything. The Spirit has come and taken away your heart of stone and dwells within you, right? You've been united to Christ and brought into the family of God, not just to sit in the corner, but rather to share in fellowship with the God that saved you, right? So John's exhortation here that we should love one another is rooted in the reality of your salvation, right? Those who receive love from the Father, love, right? Those born of God, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's rooted in the reality of our salvation. So why should we love one another? Because you've been born of God. If love is from God, then those who are born of God should thereby be recognized by their love for one another. But that's not all John says. Let's look back at verse seven. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What does he mean by that, and knows God? Is it just an intellectual knowledge, right? You just have the right concept of God or you just know correct facts about God? Is it just an intellectual knowledge? What does he mean? As a result of marrying uh, a European, I've become a huge soccer fan, which is almost dangerous to say in Texas, so don't freak out. Uh, I've become a huge soccer fan, and uh, my favorite uh, player is a guy named Lionel, or Lionel, however you want to pronounce it, Messi, okay? I have what my wife describes as an unhealthy obsession with Messi, okay? He's the greatest player in the world. He's better at soccer than Michael Jordan is at basketball. He's better than Pele. He's better than any of these guys, right? I know uh, where Messi lives. I know his wife's name. I know his three kids' names. I know his dog's name. I know his parents named him Lionel or Lionel Messi because they loved Lionel Richie. Uh, when people insult Messi and say he's not a great player, I actually, this is true, feel emotions of anger in my heart. I actually get frustrated if anyone, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, he's horrible. They can say, yeah, he's one of the best. I'm like, one of the best? He is the best, okay? As if I'm this guy's friend, right? I'm defending him constantly. Now, here's the question. Do I know Messi? If I showed up at his door, would he invite me in? Or would he have me arrested, right? He'd have me arrested because I might have all the intellectual knowledge of Messi in the world, but I don't know him personally, right? I don't have a personal knowledge of Messi. And that's exactly what John is talking about here, a personal knowledge of God. The demons have an intellectual knowledge of God. The demons know that God is Trinity. The demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. But John here is talking about a personal knowledge of God, What does Jesus say in Matthew 7 to those who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these great works in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? What does he say to them? I never knew you. 
I never knew you, right? John is here talking about a relational knowledge of God, right? Not just simply knowing facts about God. God's not a divine textbook, right? He's a living God, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Spirit that you were created to know personally, right? To commune with, to fellowship with. Athanasius, the church father, says this, for what profit would there be for those who were made if they did not know their own maker, What profit would there be for those who are made if they didn't know their own maker? You were created to know him. So if you're a Christian, you've been born of God, that's your identity, but more than that, you know him. You share in fellowship with him. The New Testament scholar Rudolf Schnackenberg, what a name, says, if being born of God refers to the believer's origin, to know God means most emphatically to have everlasting fellowship with him. What is so great about your salvation? Is it just that your sins are removed? Okay, your sins are removed. So what? Who cares? Well, my sins are removed so I can go to heaven, right? Okay, you go to heaven. So what? What's so great about heaven? Is it the mansion, right? Is it the street of gold? Is it that you can most likely fly? I don't know, teleport. Is it just that there's endless baseball games if you're over 60 and still like baseball, right? What's so great about heaven? Is it the mansion or is it behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Is it behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Your sins are removed. Your chains are broken, not so that you can just be free for freedom's sake, but so that you can be free to share in the fellowship that you were created for with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Who cares if your sins are forgiven, if that's where you stop, but rather your sins were forgiven so that the fellowship that was lost in the garden could be restored. You were saved so that you could know God, so you could have fellowship with God, which is what you'll be doing for eternity, by the way. Jesus in John 17, praying to the Father, says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have, been given, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why can't a Muslim or a Buddhist go to heaven? People ask. Easy answer. They don't want what heaven is. Rather, who heaven is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You were saved so that you might know the living God. Could there be anything more glorious? Could there be anything more glorious? So here's John's central point throughout the entire passage. Beloved, Let us love one another because you have fellowship with God. Let us love one another because you know him, because you've been born of him, right? And as we share in fellowship with God, we begin to reflect the love that is from God, right? Love is from God. As we share in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, our hearts are transformed and sanctified to bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? The kindest people I know, the most gracious and the most compassionate uh, are always the most godly, right? It's not that they just tapped into the kindness bucket, right? Rather, they go spend time with God. They study his word, they pray, and their hearts are transformed. And then they're kind, they're compassionate, they're loving, right? Fellowship with God is what is transformative, right? As you commune with him, he transforms your heart. So as we love one another, again, don't miss the order. Love comes second, not first, 
right? Fellowship with God is what drives us. Notice John isn't saying, be more disciplined and love one another, right? Rather, he's saying, those who love do so because they know God, because they commune with their heavenly father, because they have fellowship with God. So if you want to love others, there's only one way, right? And again, it's not by mustering up the power in your own strength, It's by going to God, spending time in his word and letting him do everything, letting him transform your heart, resting in the salvation that comes from him. Only that way can you love others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German pastor and martyr, says this, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. Rather, it is a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we thank our fellowship and pray and hope for it. The foundation and strength of our love for one another is only found in him. So if we want to love one another more, we look to him. We don't look to our own strength. The one who loves does so because he has fellowship with God. So let us love one another because we have fellowship with God. So there we go. Thank you, John. There's uh, another piece of the theological ground of why we love one another. Uh, It's from God, we're born of God, and we know God. And lastly, John is gonna say this. He's gonna give us one last point. Those who don't love don't know God because God is love. Look at verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he's given us the positive affirmation, right? Those who love do so because they know God. And here he's going to prove the same point by giving us the negative. He's going to say it's impossible, it would be impossible for someone to be born of God, to know him, to share in fellowship with him and not love others in their own life. It would be impossible to be of the God of love and not love others. So Jeff is one of the godliest people that I know. Uh, Coincidentally, one of the least godly people I know is also on staff. Uh, But I won't say his name because that would be embarrassing for Zach. So Jeff is one of the godliest. uh, And if you spent any time with him, you would probably say the same thing. Now I want you to imagine that you're at a party or something and everyone at Parkway is there and the staff is there. And someone comes up to you and says, he's best friends with Jeff, right? They, they, They have huge influence on each other. They talk all the time. And then throughout the course of the party, this guy's super sketchy, right? He has a horrible foul mouth, right? He's trying to steal from people. He's getting, you know, drunk and hitting on, you know, every woman inside. You would probably say, oh, he and I must be talking about different Jeffs. We're not talking about Jeff Ashley. Because there would be this expectation because of who the man that Jeff is, that those in his inner circle would look a certain way, right? And that's similar to what John is saying here, right? Those who know God... Love. Those who know the God of love, love. And uh, in the same way, those who don't know the God of love, don't love. Right? For John, knowing God and loving others are two inseparable components. Right? God is love. Uh, and if they knew the God of love, they would love. Right? It would be impossible not to. And in the same way, since they don't know God, they can't love. Right? Because God produces the love in those who are born of him. So he's given us that same point by giving us the negative example there. And so here, at the end of verse eight, 
we need to spend some time because these three words at the end of verse 8 are probably the most well-known and uh, also the most misunderstood in the entire Bible. Uh, God is love. You'll hear this in Oscar speeches. You'll see it plastered on rainbow flags at uh, gay pride parades and things like that. But what does John mean here by God is love? And simply, he means this. God is the one who defines love. God is both the source and the very definition of love. He defines love just by being, right? Everything that God does is loving because God is love. But here's what our sinful hearts do. We take those three words and we reverse the order to say love is God, right? Whatever we think is loving, surely that's what God would do. And so we create our own definitions of love and then we force God to submit to that or attempt to force God to submit to that, which is the essence of the fall, by the way. Adam and Eve said, God, I don't trust you to determine for me what is good and evil. Rather, I want to be the one to determine good and evil. It's exactly what we do here. I want to be the one to define love. And then God, you can submit to that. You hear it in statements like, how could a loving God do this? Right? Rob Bell wrote a best-selling book where he argue, argued a loving God could never send people to an eternal hell. And do you know what the title of that book was? Love wins, right? He's defined love already, and then he reads the Bible and says, this can't be right, right? A, a loving God would never do this. And he tries to make God submit to that understanding of love. Uh, the United Methodist Church is going through a split right now um, for the same reason, uh, over the issue of God's supposed approval of the LGBT lifestyle. And I've read several reports of kind of their internal debates, and 100% of what I read always goes like this. One side will say God's word calls us out of lifestyles that are not in line with his word, and the LGBT lifestyle is one of those. And the other side, every time, says this. God's word also tells us to love one another and not hate. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. What do you do with that? And so the church is splitting because of this. Uh, and that side has already defined love as tolerance. Right? God would surely tolerate any lifestyle. A God of love would surely tolerate any lifestyle. And now God has to, to submit to that. And you may think, you know, well, that's just super liberal churches. That's not creeping into evangelicalism. And heartbreakingly, that, that is no longer the case. Uh, evangelical churches may not have gone as far as to say, you know, a homosexual lifestyle is okay and approved by God, but the idea of love as tolerance, love as the absence of conviction, love certainly as never imposing your beliefs on me, and love certainly is never critiquing me, never calling out uh, my, my wrong beliefs. That is all over evangelicalism. I read an article this week by one of the most famous evangelical pastors alive, who's also the head of a major evangelical denomination, where he was asked the question, uh, should we call transgender people by their preferred pronouns? Right, so should we call a transgender person by the pronouns that they prefer? And this was his answer. Well, there's, you know, there's different opinions, but there's basically a scale. There's those who just want to tell the truth, and then there's who wanna, those who want to have a generous spirit. And personally, I lean towards the generous spirit. So not only does he separate truth and love, but he leans towards this wrong idea of love, right? That's the same idea that's in Rob Bell and that's in the United Methodist Church right now. It's all over evangelicalism. Love as tolerating sin under this false idea of love. And let me just... 
Let me say this so you don't think I'm uh, presenting a, uh, one of many definitions of love. No one in the history of Christianity has ever held this false view of love, including Jesus. Jesus was not tolerant towards false teaching and false teachers. Paul did not have a generous spirit when the Judaizers are trying to add law back to the gospel. He says, if anybody brings you a different gospel, let them be accursed, damned, and I wish those troubling you would emasculate themselves, okay? Go read Galatians and come talk to me about Paul's loving, generous tone. If Athanasius would have had this generous spirit towards the heretic Arius, then guess what? We don't have the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity would crumble because a Christ that isn't God can't save you. And all of a sudden, our doctrine of salvation crumbles as well. If the reformers would have had this loving, generous spirit that everyone in evangelicalism seems to have, you'd all still be Roman Catholic. You wouldn't believe that the Bible is your authority alone or that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. If anybody would have had this false idea of love, the church has never held it, but it's all over evangelicalism today. And where are we getting it from? Sinful world that has twisted definitions of love. So please don't drink from the same poisonous well that so many have today. John is going to tell us that love comes from God and God is the one who defines love. I'll let Charles Spurgeon have the last word on this as he comments actually on this verse. From the abundance of love, which was in John's heart, we might almost be startled at the very strong things that John writes against those who are in error if we did not remember that it is only false love that winks at error He is the most loving man who has honesty enough to tell the truth and speak out boldly against falsehood. It is very easy to pass through this world believing and saying that everybody is right. That is the way to make a soft path for one's own feet and to show that you only have love for yourself. But sometimes to speak as John the Baptist spoke and as Martin Luther spoke is the way to prove that you have true love for others. John is telling us God is the one who defines love because he is love. And it shouldn't take long when we open the scriptures to see that God defines love very differently than our sinful hearts tend to. The God of love judges his enemies. The God of love hates sin and all evildoers. The brutal death of an innocent man on a cross is probably the last place we would think to look for the Bible's display of love, but that's exactly where the Bible locates it. So John is telling us, as you love one another, love one another as God defines it. Care for one another. Do what is best for one another, whether it's encouragement or rebuke, and point one another to truth when you're in error. Love one another as God defines it. So those who don't love don't know God because God is love. You, though, beloved, have been born of God. You know God. You have fellowship with God. So love one another. Love one another. Let us love one another because we have fellowship with God. Now you may be thinking, as we talk about this idea of fellowship with God, that's great, cool, we have fellowship with God, that's a cool concept, but uh, every time I go to pray or read the Bible, I just feel super condemned because I don't actually have a quiet time that often, and so I go to have fellowship with God and be transformed like you're saying, but I just feel condemned, right? God's surely mad at me, uh, or at least disappointed in me, and so I would encourage you that uh, your relationship with God is not like your relationship with your spouse or friends. That's typically how we think of it. Right, if I didn't talk to my wife for several weeks, she'd probably be a little upset, and justifiably so. 
but that's not what your relationship with God is like, right? God's love for you is not dependent uh, on your love for him. He loved you uh, when you hated him, right? So I think he's gonna love you uh, if you haven't kept up with your quiet time for a while. Notice, I didn't say, let us love one another because we have access to God. That would make it seem like God just opens the door and is saying, okay, you come through it and do all the rest of the stuff. Fine, I'll open the door for you, but you do everything else. Now remember who your God is. Man has never been able to rise up to God. God has always had to come down to us. He sent his son to come down and dwell among us when we were rebels. He sent his spirit to come down and dwell within us when our hearts were made of stone. He's the founder of your faith. He will surely be the perfecter. You have fellowship with God because God chose you and because God brought you in and chose to make you born of him. So don't stress in what you do for God, but rather rest in what he has done for you. Let us love one another because we have fellowship with God. Let me pray uh, as those helping with communion come forward. Father, we love you. Um, We want to love one another. We want to uh, know you more. We want to experience this incredible reality that your word talks about. We want to grasp with a greater degree what this means, that we have fellowship with the living God. And I pray that we would. I pray that your spirit would just uh, give us a greater capacity, Lord, where we have misunderstandings, that your spirit would uh, shut the mouths of, of those misunderstandings, and rather we would hear from your word, we would hear from you. Lord, that where we feel wrongfully condemned, we would be encouraged, Father, and as a result of your love for us, we'd be able to love one another, set our eyes on you. God, it's so easy for our hearts to immediately just think, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to change? How can I do better? And immediately we're looking at ourselves. And I pray that we set our eyes on you, Lord, and that we're able to rest, we're able to rejoice in your word and rejoice in the salvation that only you bring. There's no salvation in us. It only comes from you, God. So we love you and pray that you would help us in your son's name. Amen.